Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart in for Joy Reid. We begin the readout tonight with the explosive news out of New York. Calls for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign are reaching a crescendo tonight, just hours after the state's attorney general released the disturbing findings of her five-month investigation. And late this afternoon, President Joe Biden joined that chorus. Are you now calling on him to resign? Yes. And if he doesn't resign, do you believe he should be impeached and removed from office? Let's take one thing at a time here. I think he should resign. The president is among a growing list of Democrats calling for Cuomo's resignation. Among New York lawmakers, that includes Senators Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio and the Democratic candidate for his job, Eric Adams, as well as the entire Democratic delegation in Congress from New York. The leader of New York State, New York's State Assembly today said that the governor can, quote, no longer remain in office, announcing that the legislature will expedite the impeachment investigation. And yet, Governor Cuomo was defiant today, digging in his heels despite the dramatic and damning revelations unveiled by Attorney General Letitia James. Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed current and former New York State employees by engaging in unwelcome and non-consensual touching and making numerous offensive comments of a suggestive and sexual nature that created a hostile work environment for women. The investigators found that Governor Cuomo's actions and those of the exec- executive chamber violated multiple state and federal laws. None of this would have been illuminated if not for the heroic women who came forward. The evidence backing those conclusions is documented in a scathing report of more than 160 pages. Investigators conducted 179 interviews, 41 of which were under oath. They received 280 tips and gathered 74,000 pieces of evidence. They found Cuomo sexually harassed 11 victims who described being, quote, violated, humiliated and terrified. According to the attorney general's office, it was all part of a disturbing pattern of conduct. The governor hugged executive assistant number one and reached under her blouse to grab her breast. There were also several occasions on which the governor grabbed her butt. The governor also several times inappropriately touched a state trooper assigned to the unit to protect the governor. He took his open hand and ran it across her stomach from her belly button to where she, the hip where she keeps her gun. The governor pressed and ran his fingers across the chest of a woman while reading the name of her company, whose logo was on her chest. The governor crossed the line many times when speaking with Charlotte Bennett. He told her that he was lonely and wanted to be touched. 
Their findings open up Cuomo to possible impeachment and even prosecution. But bear this in mind, because this was a civil investigation, any decision on criminal charges must be left to law enforcement agencies. And in fact, the Albany County District Attorney today announced that they have an ongoing investigation into Cuomo's conduct. For months, Cuomo has denied any wrongdoing, and he did so again in a pre-taped address that he released after the AG's findings were made public today. I want you to know directly from me that I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. That is just not who I am. And that's not who I have ever been. In a signal that he won't go quietly, Cuomo and his lawyers released uh, also an 85-page rebuttal to dispute the allegations. Not sure that's going to help him. You know what's worse than an embattled chief executive? One with no friends. I'm joined now by New York State Assembly member Ron Kim. Maya Wiley is a former assistant U.S. attorney and former candidate for mayor of New York. And Susan Del Percio is a Republican strategist and former special advisor to Governor Cuomo. Thank you all very much for coming to the readout. Assembly member Kim, let me start with you. I want to play... Um, what Governor Cuomo said in denying the allegations from Charlotte Bennett. Have a listen. I have heard Charlotte and her lawyer, and I understand what they are saying. But they read into comments that I made and draw inferences that I never meant. Charlotte, I want you to know that I am truly and deeply sorry. I was trying to help Obviously, I didn't. Okay, now hear Charlotte Bennett respond to Governor Cuomo in an interview uh, late this afternoon. Do you think he's gaslighting you? Absolutely. He's trying to justify himself by making me out to be someone who can't tell the difference between sexual harassment and mentorship. He sexually harassed me. I am not confused. It is not confusing. I am living in reality, and it's sad to see that he's not. And at one point, he said that he was trying to help you work through a difficult time. Did that seem like that was his intention? No. His intention was trying to sleep with me. I mean, Assemblymember Kim, how on earth does Governor Cuomo think that he can remain governor of the state of New York one more minute after something like that? It's absolutely ridiculous. I want to first acknowledge Charlotte and the 10 other women who have bravely and courageously stepped up, um, especially at a time and we have a culture where we do not believe in women. They stepped up, and now it's our responsibility to hold this executive accountable. There's a clear pattern of abusive behavior and abusive power, and it is our duty, our legal and ethical duty, to hold him accountable. And if he doesn't step down, we must impeach. Um, Susan, you know, um, in the montage that we showed, um, the the prosecutor mentioned executive assistant number one in the report. There was something in there that you as a as someone who has been a staffer for principals and you were a special advisor to Governor Cuomo. I want to read read this thing that leapt out at me. The governor claimed that it was executive assistant number one who was the initiator of the hugs. Well, he was, quote, more in the reciprocal business. He testified that he, quote, he would go along 
with tight hugs that executive assistant number one initiated because he did not, quote, want to make anyone feel awkward about anything. Susan, I'm sorry, but there is no way, no way in hell a staffer would initiate a hug with a principal, especially the governor of the state. That is correct, Jonathan. There is no way I I have not seen that happen. And if anyone knows Andrew Cuomo, you know it's not something one you would do. There's no right. I couldn't imagine for a moment during my tenure with the governor reaching out and hugging him and having think that that would be acceptable behavior. He it's just absurd on its face value. But what's more important is that what makes him think that that is an acceptable thing to say? How does he think he can get away with his behavior of blaming these women first for saying they don't understand when they're being sexually harassed, then to claim that they reached out to him? There's so many things in this rebuttal which are disgraceful and that the governor it just has to stop. It's time for him to step down. He probably won't. But this is going to go down a bad road for him, even worse. He has no friends in Albany tonight. And I would also like to just kind of give a shout out to Assemblyman Kim. He, in many ways, started this with him calling out the governor as being a bully. You don't see that from a state legislator ever with Governor Cuomo. He called mm -hmm. him out called them out hard. And I think that gave a lot of um, credibility to these other women coming out because they saw how he went after them and they didn't stop. And I really and he didn't stop. So I, I really think he deserves credit for opening up the door for the toxic behavior and the toxic environment, rather, of this governor's office. Uh, somebody member Kim, do you want to respond? You know, there people in Albany, including Maya Wally, have known about the governor's abusive style of governance for years. It's was something that he Okay, so we're having we're having trouble and we weren't gonna take it anymore. Okay, we're having trouble with Assemblymember Kim's audio. We're going to try to get that fixed. Um, but since your, na your, your name was invoked, Maya, and we're coming to you, and I just want to say it is so good to see you to see you again. I want to play you what the uh, the Albany District Attorney told our Lester Holt in an interview today about the possibility of criminal charges. Based on what you've seen in this report, is any of the behavior uh, described and attributed to the governor, would any of that be considered criminal? Well, the, the allegations early on certainly led uh, myself and other uh, prosecutors with concurrent jurisdiction to uh, to believe that criminal activity, in fact, had taken place. But we will conduct our own independent investigation. It will be done expeditiously and we will arrive at those conclusions. Maya, you're an attorney, you're a former assistant U.S. attorney. What do you think? Uh, well, first, I want to join Susan in thanking Assemblymember Kim <laughs> and just echoing his point that this is abuse, there's a power, and there's nothing surprising or new in that from Governor Cuomo. Uh, and But this is 
especially criminal. You read the investigation report and the allegations. And frankly, we knew this even back in the spring in early March and even in December from Lindsey Boylan's complaints. The allegations are at a minimum forcible touching. That is a crime in New York state. It is a misdemeanor, but each individual incident is its own count. There are a mm-hmm. lot of counts in this complaint. Now, there's obviously issues of statute of limitations, but I think at the end of the day, the issue here is there absolutely are grounds in the evidence that we're seeing for possible criminal prosecution. We have two seasoned lawyers, including a prosecutor, uh, as well as an employment discrimination attorney, saying these women were credible and they have corroborating evidence for each claim. And frankly, we should all be disturbed that the most powerful man in the state is willing to use that power, frankly, to abuse women. And that's what this report concludes. And it's not new. Right. A lot of the evidence in the report is, you know, text messages and other things that were done contemporaneously. Uh, So how the the, the idea that the governor is pushing back and saying, no, none of this ever happened or it was misconstrued. Uh, Assemblymember Kim, we we have you back. We'd love to get you um, your response now to both Susan and Maya singing your praises. Well, it's again, it's not just me. There's many others who have stepped up to hold the governor accountable. And this is what it's about. It's not about him. even. This is about accountability of an executive. Out of a mandate accountable so we, so we can learn what we did wrong, not only just against women, but against our older adults in nursing homes. Um, again, his, his lucrative book deal, all the things that he did, mm-hmm. he broke those on. We need to hold him accountable so we can fix it and not make the same mistakes moving forward. You know, there, there, among the defenses <clears throat> that Governor Cuomo um, presented, it was the, well, I kiss everyone defense. Let's watch this. I do it with everyone, black and white, young and old, straight and LGBTQ, powerful people, friends, strangers, people who I meet on the street. Susan, I mean, I kind of get what he was trying to do. See, no big deal. I kiss everyone. What would you have it? Just. Your reaction. I can't even. (laughs) Well, that's basically my reaction. I can't even. Um, But here's the thing. He's trying to use an excuse that, oh, that's how I was brought up. That's how it happened in my family, meaning his governor, his father was governor before him. It's learned behavior. Let's make it clear. You are not allowed to make any type of advancement, touch anyone as an employer to an employee without their consent. This is just absurd because even if he thinks there's nothing wrong with it, that just shows that he's ill-equipped to be governing right now in this day and age. He may be at work 30 years ago when he saw his father doing it, but in this day and age, the governor or the governor or any employer should know they cannot go around kissing people. And if they don't see anything as being wrong with that, and he used the offense like, oh, I didn't know that that's how they felt. 
well, you should know the behavior's wrong. Full stop. So these excuses are just that. They're excuses, and I don't think that they will hold water. I mean, I was in the governor's office every day, and he didn't kind of come over and kiss me, and I'm grateful for that. <laughs> Maya, I'll give you the last word um, as someone who sought public office in New York City. But if you if you were the next mayor, you would have had to deal with Andrew Cuomo. What would you say? What's your message to New Yorkers tonight, knowing what we all know now about their governor? The most powerful man in the state is trying to gaslight every single New Yorker right now with that horrendous defense that essentially says, I grab everyone's breasts. I grab everyone's butt. Actually, no, he doesn't. And in the allegations, first of all, if he did, he wouldn't be in office, and we all know it. Secondly, the allegations make clear that that is not true. The state trooper was a woman, said he was kissing me and grabbing on me, wasn't doing it to the men. And I think we can all see this for what it is. It is an effort to save his own skin, but it comes at the cost of the public trust. Because as both Susan and Assemblymember Kim have said, this is about abuse of power. This is about abusing office. And this means abusing the people of New York. And we just can't have it anymore. Maya Wiley, Susan Del Percio, Assemblymember Ron Kim, thank you all very much for coming to The Readout. Up next on The Readout, Democratic state legislators from across the country come to D.C. to stand with Texas Democrats fighting the Republican assault on voting rights. Meanwhile, a judge orders all documents for, from that sham Arizona vote audit to be turned over. As a Republican elections official in the state slams the audit as an adventure in Never Never Land. Plus, momentum is growing for vaccine mandates as emergency rooms in several states overflow with COVID patients. My guest says we're experiencing the darkest days of the pandemic. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Lawmakers from across the country have united with Texas Democrats to fight for federal voting rights legislation. The legislators blocked voter suppression bills by leaving the state and are now backed by more than 100 state legislators from 30 states who rallied near the Capitol today demanding a delay to the August recess until the Senate takes action on voting rights. 
We're done with those who wish to rewrite the rules so they can pick their voters, not the other way around. And it's why we're here to demand passage of the For the People Act. Our job was to rally the nation and bring people to Washington, D.C., because just by chance, if we came together, we would not only get the Senate to hear us, we will also get them to act. Recess can wait. Our democracy cannot. This is a now or never moment for our country. Today's push comes as 18 states have already enacted 30 laws to restrict access to voting, spurred by the twice impeached former president's big lie that has also prompted specious vote counting audits like the one in Maricopa County, Arizona. Republican state senators backing that effort issued a subpoena for computer routers and logs only to be smacked down by a county Republican official. Board of Supervisors Chairman Jack Sellers wrote, It is now August of 2021. The election of November 2020 is over. If you haven't figured, figured out that the election in Maricopa County was free, fair, and accurate, accurate yet, I'm not sure you ever will, adding, the board has real work to do and little time to entertain this adventure in Never Never Land. Please finish whatever it is that you are doing and release whatever it is you are going to release. I'm joined now by Texas State Representative Jasmine Crockett and Arizona State Representative Lorenzo Sierra. Thank you both very much for coming to the readout. Um, uh, Representative Crockett, let me have you listen to what Senator Raphael Warnock had to say about voter suppression at the rally today. Here we are in 2021, and they're trying to nullify our votes after our votes are cast all across this country. We know what this is. This is the Delta variant of Jim Crow voting laws. And the only vaccination is federal legislation. And so you keep standing up. You keep pushing us. And Representative Crockett, that to me is what is so dangerous um, about some of these laws, um, particularly this is something that's in the Georgia law, that it, not only are they trying to stop people, keep people from voting, but then once those people jump through all those hoops and cast a ballot, there are going to be people who will be able to nullify their votes. Yeah, no, first of all, thanks so much for having us. Um, you know, it's funny because we continue to talk about voter fraud. And the only fraud that I see are the Republicans, the Republicans in Georgia, the Republicans in Texas, the Republicans in Florida, the Republicans in Arizona. Because let me tell you something. Um, our elections administrator uh, was a Republican. That was our secretary of state. That's who oversaw our elections in Texas. And she also said that they were safe and secure. And the fact that you would go ahead and say, now that we have a duly sworn in president, after y'all tried an insurrection and that didn't work, you're now going to say, never mind, let's just throw out the votes. We're going to go ahead and recount them. We're going to keep counting them until they come up and they give us the numbers that we want. And that is a problem. And so the only fraud that we have in this country is Republicans. And meanwhile, Representative Sierra, in, in your state of Arizona, a judge ordered um, the state Senate to produce audit records to, to a watchdog group. Um, judge Michael Kemp wrote, state, state Senate President Fan has the authority and statutory obligation under the public records law to compel Cyber Ninjas, Inc. and its sub-vendors to produce all internal emails and correspondence outlined 
in the proposed order. How much longer is this going to go on? Jonathan, I'll tell you how much longer it's going to go on. It's going to go on as long as they're making money off this. That's how long it's Mm -hmm. going to go on. As long as they're grifting people, they're sending emails out saying, you know, why don't you donate 10, 15, 20 dollars from people who don't have an extra 10, 15, 20 dollars. They're swindling these people to fund this thing. Lord knows what they're using this money for, because it ain't for getting any good results out of this particular audit. And, you know, you did talk about earlier about that letter that Jack Sellers wrote. And I've known Jack Sellers for a couple of years. He's a Republican Board of Supervisor member probably one of the most even-keeled men I've ever met. And for him to do something this terse shows just how exasperated these Board of Supervisors are with the Arizona Senate, Republican Senate, that is. Mm-hmm. You know, Representative Crockett, um, one of the— um One of the knocks on Democrats here uh, in Washington, Uh, my colleague Nicole Wallace, I heard her yesterday saying she is mesmerized by the fact that Democrats in Washington do not seem to have their hair on fire when it comes to um, what's happening to voting rights, uh, simply because of what it means for American democracy. You've been here in Washington now for it hasn't quite been a month yet, but you've been here for a long time. For a long time, do you think, in the meetings that you have had, that official Washington, federal Washington, does indeed Democrats do indeed have their hair on fire about what these voting rights restrictions, these suppression bills, means for American democracy, and are they willing to go every step of the way to ensure that the right to vote is protected? You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, what we've decided is that this has to be an inside outside type of attack. Right. And so that's what we've done. We've applied pressure. And I I'm of the impression that we're starting to burst pipes. I'm not really sure if they're bursting just yet. Right. But that's what pressure does. Sadly enough, it wasn't enough that we killed that first bill. It wasn't enough that Georgia said, if you give them water, then that will be against the law. It wasn't enough that we saw that they wanted to do these audits in Arizona. So we then left our state again under the threat of arrest. And we said, hey, we really, really need help. It really is that serious, right? And seemingly that maybe started to get them to feel a little something. But then what we saw is we've seen pastors. We see lawmakers from other states. We are bringing everything that we got to try to let them know that it's that serious. Let me tell you something. When these new lines come out, we won't have the majority in the U.S. House. When they get done with whatever laws they're passing throughout these states, we won't have the majority in the U.S. Senate. You are allowing a radical few to to control and and blockade democracy for the most. And and Mm -hmm. it's a problem. And, you know, uh, Representative Crockett, when you say when the new lines come out, what you're talking about are the new redistricting lines because of this, the, the decennial Senate and the repopulation and everything. State legislatures all over the country are going to be redrawing those lines. And it is, I mean, one election forecaster, Rachel Bittekoffer, I talked to, she said, you know, Democrats, before a vote is even cast, will probably lose 10 seats in the House. Uh, Representative Sierra, uh, your your perspective on whether Democrats in Washington, whether Washington as a whole, views this as urgently as the two of you do. 
You know, I would say, and, and I had the great pleasure of meeting Representative Crockett today, so it, it was a pleasure meeting her. We are on the ground there with the people. We see them every day. We are knocking on their doors. We are talking to them at, at events. I see my constituents in my grocery store. You know what? It When you have that perspective, it is a whole different than if it's this quasi uh Thing that's going on out there in these places, whether it's that audit, whether it is uh, Governor Abbott in Texas pu pushing these draconian laws, we see it and hear it and feel it every day. And that's why, you know, as you say, our hair is on fire on this because we see it every day and we know what the outcomes they want are. Just as Representative Crockett mentioned, they want those unfair lines. They want the ability to have their, you know, to, have, to be able to have their uh, voters being able to vote, while folks in my neighborhood may have a harder, you know, more barriers to voting. So though we see it, and that's why we are all here in D.C. now, to make sure that we can tell those stories of the people, like the people on the Navajo reservation. There's a law that just passed, and it is going to severely affect the way our Navajo brothers and sisters are going to be able to vote. And we really need to address this at a national level so that we have a baseline voting procedures nationwide. OK, real quick. Yes or no answer. Representative Crockett, given everything that you've been doing, are you what's your gut telling you? Will we get a voting rights bill out of the U.S. Senate? Yes or no? Yes. Representative Sierra, yes or no? I'm praying yes. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll all we're all praying. Texas State Representative uh, Jasmine Crockett, Arizona State Representative Lorenzo Sierra. Thank you both very much for coming to the readout. Still ahead, as some southern states grapple with a severe shortage of ICU beds, more cities and businesses, including New York City, are now requiring vaccinations for work and indoor activities. Stay with us. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is, is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it. Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. The nation is now at the tipping point of understanding just how important and vital COVID vaccination really is. Today, New York City became the first U.S. city to require proof of at least one dose for a variety of activities for workers and customers. That includes indoor dining, gyms and performances. And Tyson Foods, one of the nation's largest meat processors, said today it will require its 120,000 U.S. employees to be vaccinated by fall. Today, President Biden addressed the nation on the fight against COVID and sent a message directly to governors who are resisting such mandates, even as their hospitals are setting off alarms. Worst of all, some state officials are passing laws or signing orders that forbid people from doing the right thing. As of now, 
Seven states not only ban mask mandates, but also ban them in their school districts. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. This statement from the president comes as COVID is once again overwhelming hospitals in states like Louisiana, which is leading the nation in new cases and has become the first state to reissue a statewide indoor mask mandate that goes into effect tomorrow. Joining me now is Dr. Catherine O'Neill, infectious disease specialist and chief medical officer of Our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center, the largest hospital in Louisiana. And due to having more than 160 patients there with COVID-19, it is currently out of hospital beds. Dr. O'Neill, thank you very much for coming to the readout. Um, you know, you said to uh, Reuters um, today, you said, these are the darkest days of this epidemic. We are no longer giving adequate care to patients. Talk more about that. Yesterday, when we spoke at the governor's conference, uh, myself and um, a group of physicians um, really just supporting the mask mandate, we talked about where we are today, which is today in Louisiana, the most hospitalizations we've ever seen from COVID-19 at one time. At the end of the day today at our hospital, 175 patients admitted with COVID-19, the highest we've ever had at any given time during the mm. pandemic, admitting one patient per hour, 10 children in our children's hospital. It doesn't get any worse than this, but when we talk about darkest days of the pandemic, what we're really talking about is that we're losing the safety net that our hospital relies on. So what is that safety net for the community? It's EMS providers. It's quick time to action. It's making sure that everybody gets the care that they need on time. And now we're seeing delays, not just in the hospital, but delays in care as you approach the hospital from an emergency standpoint, delays in care to getting out to you if you have an emergency. And that safety net is something that not just COVID-19 patients, but everybody depends on. You know, and I was going to ask you about that. Um, there's a story in AP today. Louisiana breaks record for COVID-19 hospitalizations. But here's this, the key poll quote. Health officials say the influx of COVID-19 patients is damaging hospitals' ability to care for people with heart attacks, injuries from car accidents and and other conditions. That's and you just said this, but I want to highlight for people. That's what you mean by this being the darkest days, um, the darkest days of this pandemic. That's right. As healthcare providers, we are interested in making sure that everybody gets the health care that they need and everybody gets the quality of care that we would give to every single patient. And so what we heard today in our call with the governor and our Department of Health, hospitals around the state who said we can't get a patient out of the hospital. Nobody is accepting transfers. And these are patients mm -hmm. who are sitting in hospitals that don't have the level of care that they need. So when we when we take care of mass disasters, when we take care of emergency issues like hurricanes, we all pull together. And at this point, we're seeing a fracturing of that system because each one of us is overloaded. There's no way to there's no way to pull together and get out of this together except to vaccinate and today mm -hmm. to mask. You know, Dr. O'Neill, um, I want everyone who's watching to watch a, a patient at, at your hospital named Chantel. Have a listen to what she has to say. Go take the shots. Don't be like me. Look at me. I'm in a hospital suffering. Got breathing problem. Got high blood pressure. Got diabetes. And going through all this for one stubborn mama. Mm. Wanna be, oh, I'm superwoman. I'm gonna be all right. Nope. You, you can be superwoman 
but Super Bowl in the hallway gets to shut down. You know, Dr. O'Neill, just listening to that uh, breaks my heart. I just wonder, will her compelling message, will that resonate um, for people in Louisiana, for people around the country who have yet to be vaccinated? I hope so. But I think what we've learned from speaking to so many people about what their hesitancy is, is that everybody needs a different message. So some people need the message of just don't delay. They've put it off. They thought they'd get it at some point. Now is the time. But some people also need the message. They, they, they really do feel like they're not going to be harmed by this disease, that they are, they are of the health, the age, the demographic, that, that it's not going to hurt them. And I think at this point, we need to also realize that vaccination is a team sport. It's a community activity and that whether or not it's going to affect you in a way that is detrimental to your health, health by not getting vaccinated, you affect the rest of the community. And the unvaccinated are really putting too much of a pressure on our community. And so we need this to become a community effort to get rid of this infection in our community and allow that safety net to protect everybody the way that it should. With that, we're going to leave it there. I hope everyone hears you, Dr. O'Neill, and also hears Chantel's message there. Dr. Catherine O'Neill, thank you very much for coming to The Readout. Up next, the polls have just closed on a pair of key congressional special election primaries in Ohio that are shining a big, bright spotlight on ideological divides within the parties and the power of Trump's influence. Key takeaways are next. Stay with us. Minutes ago, the polls closed in two special Ohio House primaries. The elections have the potential to be bellwether races for both the Democratic and Republican parties. In the 11th congressional district, which spans from Cleveland to Akron, local Democratic Chair Chantel Brown and former state Senator Nina Turner are running to replace HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge. Brown is endorsed by Hillary Clinton and several senior members of the Congressional Black Caucus, including South Carolina kingmaker Jim Clyburn, while Turner's been endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. It was a split screen between progressives and moderates in Cleveland over the weekend as Sanders campaigned for Turner, while Clyburn campaigned for Brown. Meanwhile, Trump's endorsement power is being put to the test after his candidate lost last week in Texas. He's endorsed, he's endorsed coal lobbyist Mike Carey in Ohio's 15th district near Columbus. Carey's running against 10 other Republicans, including State Representative Jeff LeRae, endorsed by the former congressman who held that seat. Joined now by New York Times reporter Jeremy Peters and Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinsons. <laughs> Robinsons, there's two of you. <laughs> Thank you both very much for, for being here. Jeremy, you you have been covering you've been covering um, these races in Ohio. I want to ask you specifically about the Nina Turner Chantel Brown race. This is Folks are like waiting for the first results to come in because this really is a, a battle between the two wings of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. well, that's exactly right, Jonathan. And the people I've spoken to on the ground really can't overstate how acrimonious and bitter it's gotten in this final stretch where you have a flood, a cascade of outside money and politicians from outside the district, luminaries in the Democratic Party and the progressive movement coming in and making their case for but mainly against the other candidate. And they haven't really seen anything this contentious 
in recent times. And I think a lot of folks there are quite unsettled by it and will be glad to have it over. That said, when it's done, I don't think you're going to have, you know, regardless of who wins, a very clear answer about which wing of the party has the momentum behind it. It's a special election. And as you well know, most special elections don't draw very much turnout. And neither side, the you know activist left flank of the party and the leadership in Washington is going to concede that they've screwed this up and they're throwing up their hands and we're waving the white flag. So I think we've got uh, 2022 ahead of us and a lot more races like these to cover. Mm-hmm. And Jane, I would love to get your your thoughts on this, but also I am struck by how for uh, how forward um, members of the Congressional Black Caucus have been in their comments in this race. You've got CBC chairwoman Joyce Beatty, who said Chantel Brown would honor the rich history of the group, not be someone who fights against it while trying to make a name for themselves. Congressman. Benny Thompson of Mississippi, Brown wouldn't be, quote, a single solitary know-it-all. Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York, she wouldn't, quote, come in and try to break up that unity. Gene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is tough stuff. (laughs) Look, um, um, you know, you've got um, you've got different personalities at work here, too. And and Nina Turner, let's face it, she's a she's a lightning rod or maybe a lightning bolt. I mean, she is a fiery um, speaker, a fiery person um, to say that 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 she doesn't mince words is is really an <laughs> understatement. And a lot of people, including Jim Clyburn, um, were were offended and uh, really ticked off by some of the things she said uh, during the 2020 presidential campaign, um, uh, <laughs> including mm-hmm. a, a really a scatological reference to, uh, to, to, to Joe Biden that didn't yeah, go we got, we got very that well in, in establishment <laughs> land. Um, and, and so they've all piled in behind Chantel Brown, but, but Turner has the money. She has more money than Brown. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to be the determining factor. And as you said, it's a special election, an off an off cycle, a special election primary. So who knows what turn, turnout is going to be like, but you expect it's, it'll be pretty low. And so the question is, who motivates their voters to, to go out and vote? And we'll find out, I guess, in a in a little while. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, let's look on the on the Republican side. Uh, what's going on in that race? There are 10, 10 Republicans running in this uh, in, in the uh, in the primary. Who's the, I mean, are all 10 actually viable or was this a, a race between one or two people between two or three people? Well, the issue is, yeah, I think it could be wide open depending on turnout, right? I mean, it's a I, it's saying wide open actually, you know, it probably overstates the competitiveness of it somewhat, given that the, the sheer name recognition that comes with a Trump endorsement in the Republican Party. But as a conservative activist pointed out to me when I was reporting on this story last week, in such an enormous field. In a low turnout election, 
a small number of votes can make the difference. And Mm -hmm. a number of the people running against the Trump endorsed candidate, this this energy lobbyist who was virtually unknown before Trump endorsed him uh, named Michael Carey, uh, are several people with long histories of conservative activism in the district. They're just better known political figures, or at least their records as conservatives Mm -hmm. are known to voters. So I don't know. It, it, It should be interesting. As you pointed out, Jonathan, Trump lost a race last week in Texas. One of his preferred candidates didn't win in a special race there. So if if Michael Kerry goes down tonight, that is really mm-hmm. going to be a black eye and, and, and a, put a big question mark over the supposed political right. gold ticket that Donald Trump's endorsement is. Uh-huh. Gene, in the minute that we have left, I got to get your your reaction to the new order from the CDC, a new eviction moratorium for 60 days um, that would last until um, the 3rd of October. Um, does this solve the problem for the administration and for the White House? No, of course it doesn't solve the problem. It might. Um, it, it, it might. It's a band aid that could last until October third. Uh, the president himself said he doesn't think it'll pass, or he's doubtful that it will pass constitutional muster. What he's doing, but um, to chalk this one up for the progressives, for the progressive wing, for Cory Bush, uh, mm-hmm. the representative from uh, from Missouri, who's been sleeping outside the car- of the Capitol to draw attention to this issue, to try right. to force Congress do something. And um, so so progressives won this one. Yep. That's Representative Cory Bush of Missouri. I'm going to have to leave it there. Eugene Robinson, Jeremy Peters, thank you very much for coming to The Readout. Up next, a medal-winning return for Olympian Simone Biles. Stay with us. Nearly a week after withdrawing from competition to focus on her mental health, Simone Biles made a triumphant return to the Olympic podium in Tokyo, earning a bronze medal on the balance beam for Team USA. This is her seventh Olympic medal. She's now tied with Shannon Miller as the most decorated female American Olympic gymnast. Biles talked about missing out on the gold this morning on the Today Show. I didn't really care about the outcome. I was just happy that I made the routine and that I got to compete one more time. It means some more than all of the golds because I've pushed through so much the last five years and the last week while I've even been here. It was just, it was very emotional and I'm just proud of myself and just all of these girls as well. Biles also said she's going to let the events of Tokyo sink in before deciding whether to return for the 2024 games in Paris. And that's tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.